Welcome back to the Monument Lab podcast. This episode, we focus on St. Louis. For the past two years, Monument Lab has worked closely with the Pulitzer Arts Foundation mapping monuments in St. Louis. That includes traditional landmarks and unofficial sites of memory, whether they're existing, erased, or potential. To mark the close of our project together, we wanted to speak with locally rooted MADAD, a brilliant and thoughtful collective of artists and designers from St. Louis, whose work highlights spatial injustice and cultural memory gaps in the region. MADAD's Damon Davis, Mallory Roxana Nizam, and Dee Nichols work to reimagine how joy, justice, and interactivity improve public spaces. The group started collaborating together during the making of Mirror Casket, a sculpture, performance, and visual call to action made in the aftermath of the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014. Mirror Casket is now in the collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Madad's new project, Black Memory SDL, Division, Displacement, and Local Diaspora, is a multi-year series of public art installations and interventions with the Brickline Greenway and the Griot Museum of Black History. Madad is also a member of the 2020 Monument Lab Fellows, and are featured in the exhibition and book project Shaping the Past with the Goethe Institute and the German Federal Agency for Civic Education. I'm your host, Paul Farber. This is Monument Lab. Welcome to Monument Lab public art and history podcast. Each episode, we explore stories and critical conversations about the past, present, and future of monuments. We speak to the artists, activists, and historians on the front lines, building the next generation of public spaces through stories of social justice and equity. Here are the monumental people, places, and ideas of our time. Nichols, Damon Davis, and Mallory Roxana Nazam. Welcome to the Monument Lab podcast. Thanks for having us. Yes, definitely. So you're a trio whose work focuses and is based in St. Louis, um, but you have connections and roots in other places. Just to start, how has your work converged in St. Louis and how how is it related to your connections to that place and other places too? Yeah, I, I can start. So I am not from St. Louis. I grew up in the Mississippi Delta. Um, I, I grew up in a, a town called Cleveland, Mississippi. And in many ways, Cleveland became in my mind a microcosm of a lot of the things that I, I learned, witnessed, uh, and experienced in St. Louis, uh, from thinking about spatial division and segregation uh, to seeing the, the power of Black women leadership uh, in a, a civic space and in, 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 in setting. With being situated in, in St. Louis, that was by choice. I moved there in 2006 for undergrad and uh, stayed because I fell in love with the city. And in many ways, the the city molded me into the the person who I am now, especially as an artist and a speaker and an organizer. I'll hop in. This is Mallory. The place is just so 
central to me as a person and to definitely to my work and to what I think has brought the three of us together. I'm from St. Louis. I was born on the South side in the city and then moved to the County, then lived on an Island in the Caribbean, then moved back to the County. I moved around a lot in St. Louis. So I think that's also kind of given me an interesting perspective on the region because I was quite mobile around it. And as I grew up, moved out of St. Louis, I went to undergrad in LA. I lived abroad in Spain. I studied in India. So I've kind of been moving around a lot. I lived in New York for a little bit. And then I think also just kind of growing up in a really multicultural environment. I come from quite a few different backgrounds through my family line and being able to see St. Louis through those different lenses too growing up really showed me how many different different lives were being lived in the same place, but not not quite as shared as um, you know, I think I would want. They felt kind of divided, a lot of the different parts of myself and different communities that I grew up and participated in. I didn't plan to move back to St. Louis as an adult. I was actually in St. Louis for health reasons. Uh, I'd come back from Spain. I was living in Spain, planning to move back to Europe and um, was here healing up and just fell back in love with St. Louis and didn't think twice about it and stayed for a really long time. And that's when I met Dee and Damon uh, through a few different paths. And uh, I think coming back here has totally changed my life and grounded my work and given me a really clear sense of purpose. Yeah, Mallory and I actually met in, I think, 2011 on a road trip from St. Louis to Detroit. I was driving. I had no clue who she was, but we were going to a conference called uh, Rust Belt to Artist Belt. And that was, you know, the start of of the magic. That was a fun trip. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, this is Damon, and uh, I'm from St. Louis, too. I was born in East St. Louis, Illinois, so across the river. And I echo what Mallory said. I think place is a, is hugely important to um to what to what I think each and every one of us do. And I and I personally hold it up in all of the work that I do, and and not just places physical, but but also like the place with the 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 spirit that the people have that that you around. Um, it shaped a lot of the the interests and the things that I, I tackle in the work that I do. And I think that's what brought us all together. I met um. I met D. I think it, we met on SLU campus, but we was meeting for some for some. It, uh, I can't remember what it was—an interview or. Yeah, or, it was uh, for the Contemporary Art Museum. We wanted to uh, work with Damon for uh, this effort that I used to run uh, with the Art Bus in St. Louis. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, it was mainly just to brainstorm about what can we build in public space. Uh, with like a $500 budget. And I, I think you envision, what was it called? Like an outdoor exploratorium. And yeah. we ended up like building, like dumpster diving, yeah. building it in the back of the museum. <laughs> yeah, out of cardboard and Christmas lights. Christmas uh, lights yeah. But installed it on Cherokee Street and people actually participated. Yeah, it, it, went, it went over fairly well for the, for the, uh, for our modest budget, and I, um, but but I think that was great. And I met Mallory through just 
hanging out with other artists. I think at, at parties and stuff, we started seeing each other. Well, then um, we were in the Community Arts Training Institute together. Yes, and yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so okay. that was probably yeah. probably where we really connected. Yeah, yeah I would so, say that's a thread amongst all of us and a lot of the other collaborators that we've worked on, worked with on projects like the Mirror Casket and stuff. Yeah. All of us were trained through the Community Arts Training Institute uh, at the Regional Arts Commission. So as you've moved in and out of the city, how have you encountered other people's stories about St. Louis, like what they assume um, and how do you react to it? Uh, it's, it depends on what era of St. Louis we, we talking about or what, what context a lot of times when I, um, when I go places, my accent, tells on me, you know, and so people don't, they, sometimes they think I'm from Atlanta or something like that, but St. Louis is is in the way I speak, so it's usually a, a good uh, icebreaker before I even say where I'm from. People ask me about uh, my accent, so sometimes that's good, but then other times um, I get a, a certain sort of uh, arrogance in certain circles, as though we are not, um, you know, we're not as refined or not as intelligent as other people. And as of late, as of the last five years, I guess, I guess that's not that late, but for a while now, we've become synonymous with like uprising because of what happened in Ferguson, at least in the circles and places when I, when I pull up at, that's what's attached to St. Louis is, is a place either, either, either it's a pole, it's, it's like super polarized. It's either a place that's fraught with problems and, 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 racism or the the murder rate or you know it's just not a um an appealing place to be at or or it's like a a, a beacon of hope in, in a lot of cases with people that that find themselves in in a world in in like the the talking about uh social issues people that are people that are focused in on that so I, I get a myriad of things but it's usually those two reactions when i go when i leave um when I'm in, when I'm going nationally and, and, and internationally, it's usually one of those two things. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, in, in my experience, it's been almost this this fascination that people have about St. Louis as it relates to activism, uh, civil resistance, uprisings, etc. Uh, for the last year, I I've lived in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and. It, you know, in, in the East Coast, you don't see a lot of folks who are from the Midwest and down South who are uh, proudly saying, here's where I'm from. Let's talk about this. And so there there's a lot of space in conversation that opens up because people want to know what what is it like in these areas that aren't always fully represented in these spaces on on the coast. And so often it's that people know about all the bad things about St. Louis um, and they they know heavily about the uprising in Ferguson. And for, for me as as a steward, as a, uh, as a person, as someone who likes to celebrate the hell out of St. Louis, I, I always fuse in, yes, we have, you know, all these issues and we have 
an arts renaissance that's happening. We have some of the best food that you will ever get. We have all of these folks who are culture makers and history makers, and there's a richness to the culture here. And don't like, don't discount that part. Uh, so it's, you know, I, I always look forward to the conversations that we have uh, when I'm not in, in St. Louis. Um, but it's always ensure that there's that balance of perspective with it. Everything that, that they've said. And with uh, D, I also feel like I'm, I'm always repping St. Louis, like, not because I feel like I have to, but because I genuinely love St. Louis and I don't think people outside of St. Louis understand it. So that there's like the the question of how do people perceive St. Louis from outside of it, and then also how does St. Louis how do St. Louisans perceive themselves and the city itself or the region itself? So yeah, I, I agree with both both of you that you know folks don't really know outside of St. Louis don't really know St. Louis, and that I think in a large sense is the same in most cities. Uh, people outside have some skewed perspective on what it's really like, but it's harder for smaller cities to be able to like let people know what's really going on there. But I would say when I hear stories inside of the region from people who live here or even people who've moved away that grew up here, I find there maybe a few different kind of nar- kinds of narratives. There's like the classic un- underdog understanding where people are like, very humble about this place or, you know, maybe don't wish it was more than it is or wish it was something else. Kind of always striving to be something that people feel like it will never be able to be. Um, I find that narrative really frustrating personally, because I think as like dreamers and imaginers and creators, you know, it's like, we have to always believe that you know, there's a, there's magic here and we have to have like a deep sense of love and hope and not, you know, feel like we're never going to get to where we want to be. Um, so that, but that is something I hear a lot of. And I think that like, it's part of, it's part of the work that we do. We have to confront that perspective. Um, and I also find, and I, I think this is not uncommon to St. Louis, but I definitely feel it, feel it's really thick here that people have a very singular perspective of like their cut of life in St. Louis. And that's how it is here. And there are a lot of different St. Louis's, I think. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people see all those different St. Louis's. They, I mean, and honestly, like I live in Oakland right now and it's the same thing there. It's the same thing everywhere I've lived, but it's, I think that can be dangerous. And that's why like the work story sharing and the work that creative folks do and especially work in public spaces is so powerful to break out of your your little bubble way of seeing the place that you live in your project black memory sdl division displacement and local diaspora is really powerfully named but i am curious about that the last phrase local diaspora um it seems to tap into especially what you're saying mallory about there being many different st louis's what does local diaspora mean to you um, and what is it framed in response to? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're spot on in the, the way of picking up what uh, Mallory was just talking about of the many St. Louis's and how that relates to a local diaspora in, in, in the sense that 
Black folks and folks of color are always being forced to move. When we think about some of the civic history uh, of the city in the built environment, we have countless Black neighborhoods that are now uh, areas that are strip malls and shopping malls, uh, from the Galleria to the new NGA to uh, what what has happened with Mill Creek Valley. The the histories and the communities of of folks there have been intentionally forced to to relocate, and there's this you know this sense of displacement that happens because of that but it's not just the physical uh shifting and, and moving of of people but also of history and culture and and community and i i think you know we have to reckon with that in the ways that we start to reimagine what the future of the city looks like yeah i um i wholeheartedly agree with that and the fact that black people are always being moved or, or people of color always being moved and heard it. Um, it speaks to something that's much bigger than St. Louis. It's, it's, it speaks to the to the to the spirit of the United States and how they see people of color and how yes. they see people of um, of other descents and, and and how how we're used as, as fuel for, for for capitalism or for or for or for whatever the the, the the people that are in charge at the moment and usually white men seek to deem us as and, and put us in a place. So, so St. Louis, one, one funny thing about being here is you get to see everything turned up to the max. And so when you go to other places in the United States, there's a sympath, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a, you're much more sensitive to what was overt in your, in your hometown in, in regards to racism or whatever ism. You're much more keen and awake when you see it um, show up in other places. And like with St. Louis has been a, a a historical battleground uh, for the spirit of this country in multiple times over multiple generations. And so when you see something like what happened in Ferguson, that's because those people were moved out of the city. They were, they were herded out to the city and they were, they were designated a space where they, where they could be. And then they, they were policed and they, they, they were colonized for, for lack of a better word. And so when you see these, these flashpoints, that make St. Louis famous. People love to think that they just come out of nowhere. They just materialize. And why are these people so mad? And what what's wrong with these kids? And why they, they you're looking at generations of harm, right? Um, you're looking at generations of people being pushed. Yeah, collective around. trauma. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, and and then you when you see the eruption, you shouldn't be surprised by it because it's 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 on brand for the United States. And just because you can see it much more clearly here, does not mean. Um, that that ain't the order of the day everywhere else. You know, they just figured out how to say it better and hide it easier, you know? And I think that history in St. Louis is so, like, physicalized. I feel that I can move through the city and I can feel that history so deeply in a way that is, I think, unique to St. Louis. I know I grew up here, so maybe that's part of it. But I just feel like that history, it's just so blatant and seeping when you move through the the spaces of the city yeah Um, yeah i agree in in the fact that like the politics of st louis is fixed on the exploitation and extraction of of resources from black and brown communities like when when we think about uh, debtors prisons and we think yeah. about how you can drive through so many of the municipalities across the region especially in in North County and literally get a ticket 
from town to town to town and that's how they make their money like mm-hmm. that that's exploitation that is violence that type of hoarding uh of of people's resources for, for so that you can continue to police them and have power over them that is violent and that is like damon said such a quintessential ex- example of what this nation is you know we have to reckon with that we have to protest that we have to dis- dismantle the the pedagogy around the ways in which our government locally and nationally treats our our residents our citizens our people i also want to like come back to the word diaspora and the historic trauma that we're we're talking about right now yeah. because I feel like in diasporas and uh, it's really interesting to think of it in relation to just a city, but I feel like there is a practice of historic erasure that happens where like you yeah. are either meant, you are meant to forget your roots and that's part mm-hmm. of the practice. Um, and it, I think that's also a white supremacist practice in general and how that's applied to St. Louis. Absolutely. And so I'm curious what that means for our work, you know, like the historic erasure we talk about a lot in, in the context of the, uh, the projects that we work on and, um, you know, re yeah. reexamining and, and lifting back up uh, hidden history and what that means uh, as artists and creators in public space. I think it's, it's very important to unearth histories and not and keep them for, for net, the next generation and not for the oppressor either, not to make right. the oppressor a better person. I, I, I'm not trying to teach them how to be human beings. Or, how or to, appease their guilt. Uh, yeah, or any of that. This is for the people that, that know that reality and, and to give them some vindication and some validation so that they can remember and not lose those roots um um and 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 we're not talking about not growing or none of that you know because that could be flipped or not you know not evolving or any of that it's just you can't evolve if you don't know where you come from when i think of the word diaspora diaspora i think of people being marooned somewhere or people being people Mm. completely cut off from what they used to be and them having to have to create Mm -hmm. a new culture and a new identity. And if that happens to you every generation, it's really hard to get a footing on who you want to be and where you're going to go. And that is a strategic and systematic um, tool to keep people in a certain place. If they can't never get their feet on the ground, then they can never, they can never stand up to you. So the thing is, it's, it's not by accident. That 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 um people get moved in this place like this every generation. I think it's handed down and it's taught. It's taught specifically to keep power by the people in power to their children and to her, whoever they the, the descendants that's gonna get get the mantle later. Because they know if you start to let people believe in themselves, right? That's what that's what art does, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's not only a history keeper. It gives you it gives you a reference point that somebody that looks like you or that comes from the that was born in the same body as you or whatever, however you designate the tribe that you from won at some point. And if all you ever see is losses because they erase all the wins, you will never try to stand up to them. Right. right. But the artists keep those stories and you know, the artists make those heroes and those myths. So that's why it's so important when, when that's why when you see people tearing down monuments, that ain't just about that one person that was, that was cast in bronze. That's about an idea that those people represent. And if you right. can beat that idea, 
then if you can beat it there, then you can beat it in real life. And see, that's the that's the most dangerous thing usually. Yeah. And I mean, just taking that to uh, another level, the fact that within our city, we have not just monuments, but we have street names, parks named, uh, buildings and stuff named after the oppressor. And we have to say their name every time we're at the intersection. We have to know their names each time that we're trying to get directions to to a, a, a new place. And that type of internalization, when it when it's paired with the fact that when we are on the north side and in and across black neighborhoods that spaces have been left to look a certain way intentionally like that type of double internalization of who we are being groomed or like who who the children are being groomed to think that they are or are worth that is that like I, I bring a lot of things back to violence. It is structurally yeah. and systemically mm-hmm. violent mm-hmm. to uh, have that type of psychological warfare placed upon you when you are a child and all throughout your, you know, your, your life. And so all of that relates to monuments, all of that relates to history, all of that relates to culture and why projects like what we're creating um, start to, to find um, not just, you know, relevance, but, but power in, in the ways that they can potentially harness and leverage other folks' energy to address these things. Every city in America is segregated and has a history of segregation on its physical landscape. You know, but in some of the ways that, that you're pointing out, the, the story of, of segregation in, in St. Louis city and county is often remarked upon. It's is often talked about, um, whether from the histories of racist covenants um, to to other other episodes. And I, I think about driving and moving through the city and just seeing all kinds of barriers and barricades and one way streets. There's a it, there's a way in which moving through the city, you encounter um, division profoundly written into the landscape, which is violent, as you say. Is that what you're thinking about when you also say use the words division and displacement? Or maybe a better way to say it is like what what is the experience from the ground level to to navigate through those spaces that that you're inheriting that have violent legacies to them and require resistance? I wonder if another D word on on this is like the destabilization. Um yeah not just the the division itself, but going back to Damon's point of how it disorients you about where your footing is and where you can be grounded. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, um, I think that's the primary tactic. Other things may be, um, may just be by proxy effects, but I think the primary tactic is to keep people, um, off balance, and you you can see that in any other place in, in colonialism. We we it don't it don't it ain't a huge jump. You can look at what what they did to the African continent. You can look at what happened in India and in Asia. You can look you can look and see what's happening in South America. It's about destabilizing the people that that are there. You start erasing they they history. You start you start messing them up generation after generation. They're gonna look to you for guidance. So if people get their own self awareness 
and 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 self-actualization they won't they won't look to you and that means you don't have power over them anymore and i think that's what a lot of that that's where geography plays into power like like in, in the most specific way when we're talking about colonialism i think there are also very explicit policies that keep st louis segregated i just think about like the city and county are separate entities it's it's actually quite rare um in that feels to me like a way to really keep those two entities divided. And then also, like most cities, I don't know how distinct this is to St. Louis, but there are very specific like, urban planning and design decisions that keep kept that segregated areas of the city from each other and the region from itself um, that have been done and undone and changed over time, but they continue most of them continue to exist in one way or another and continue to be geographic barriers between neighborhoods, between resources, between access to jobs, mobility, infrastructure, things like that. And those decisions can haunt us for decades. And, you know, a lot of places are are trying to, to ameliorate that. And I don't think that St. Louis is, um, I think there is an opportunity with some of the work that we're doing with the Brickline Greenway to um, to do a little bit of kind of dialogue building across some of these lines and addressing some of these like distinct um, moments or, or geographies of divide and to provoke at that point and to heal at that point. That's that's big work. That's bigger than just a single art project. But I think that's part of I mean, that's part of why I love working with Dean Damon is because I think our work is rooted in provocation and healing. And I see that opportunity in the projects we're working on right now. Was Mirror Casket one of the first projects that you worked on together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Go, like yeah, all three of us. Too. Yes. You mentioned Mirror Casket which was, a, as the website says, a, a visual structure, performance, and call to action for justice in the aftermath of the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014. And that work is now in the collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. What was the process in making Mirror Casket? And you've talked about these structures of erasure and destabilization. What did you set out to do by making mirror casket? I mean, the the point was to make the police see, like, the the violence of, of this issue, uh, but also make folks see that we are also uh, both complicit and for many of us who are, are Black and Brown, that this could also be our people being slain by, by police. Um, the you know, as far as the process, a lot of that was, you know, coming from nights of, of protesting. I I started protesting the uh, Wednesday after Mike Brown was shot. And a lot of the time I was out there in the daytime. Uh, and once I started going out in at night and, you know, all of this is documented. I won't tell the full story, but uh, a lot of what I was experiencing uh, was not the same uh, as what was being um, reflected back to the mainstream media. And there was a lot of threats, uh, a lot of 
uh, intimidation that was being provoked by the police uh, out there. And that really just, you know, took me into this, this mental space of having these series of nightmares. Uh, I, I have six brothers and I, I'll, I'll be damned if any of them are, are killed by police. And one, so in these series of, of nightmares, one of the nightmares kept being about these men carrying a casket in the, in the middle of the night um, that was made out of mirrors. And I couldn't shake that, that visual out of my head. So I uh, did some sketches. I wrote, uh, as, wrote an email to as many artists as I could in St. Louis and s- six other artists showed up. We met at a, a coffee shop, uh, Cafe Ventana, yeah. and mm-hmm. it was Mallory, Damon, Sophie, Elizabeth Vega, Derek Laney, and Marcus Curtis. We all played a role in actualizing this this vision, this idea. Uh, me and Sophie, we sourced all the materials. Uh, Damon and, and Marcus, they got to building it. Mallory and, and Vega and Derek, they led all of the performative elements of it. After that first night in, in Ferguson, and I was in the hospital on, on that, that night, uh, I had been rushed to the hospital for a few rounds of um, blood transfusions because I... I People know I, I've been very sick over the last few years, and on that night, the rest of the team they actualized that shit, and it was it was beautiful to to witness, even from a hospital bed. Yeah, that was an intense that that whole time yeah. that, that that weekend was very intense. That was Ferguson in October. Color. Yeah, that was a, that was a lot. Um, but it was not. I don't think I'm ever gonna live through anything like that ever again. It was a, it was a it was an uh, amazing time to be alive, straight up. Um, yeah. And, and I, what I remember from we've been talking a lot about um, what how we've been divided in St. Louis, right? And how people get divided, and what the property lines and the geography and all of that. But in in certain moments, those things that was dividing certain people bring other people closer than they ever been before. And um, that's what I saw, and that's what I like to remember about um. That, that that mirror project because I didn't know a lot. I didn't know everybody. I knew um, Mallory D. I knew Marcus, but I, I knew of I knew Vega, but I didn't know her like that, you know. But I knew those people because we we kind of ran in the same art circles um, on the south side. But like getting together, that like it was a time before it wasn't no egos. It wasn't no uh, a lot of ownership, and and we were we were just very young and naive in, in our hearts around how much change we could do. And I think them the people who actually changed the world. Um and, yeah. and I think that uh and I think that we we was we just wasn't afraid of nothing. And and um and I, I, I remember that and I remember that casket being one of the, the moments that for me personally on my practice that I, I um I, I I felt very self actualized and I felt that I had found my my purpose was I was being fulfilled. You know, like like that this was, you know, you could be making shit just to be making it and making things cute and making. But but th- th- this was a moment when we was making stuff that was um, that was very it, 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 it was for more than just us. It wasn't just internal yeah. reflection like most artwork. It ain't all about me and my problems and all of that. It felt as selfless as it could get in that in that moment, you know, so that that, that was a very special time to be could yeah. be a creative and be creating in a moment like that. And I mean, just to add to that a, a bit 
you know, we, some of us, we were uh, organizing as Artivist STL and there were a lot of projects that came out of St. Louis from various artists uh, during that time period. I, I think I stopped counting, like uh, archiving them at 82. Um, and we, so we know that there's even more than 82 projects um, or artworks that, that came out of that. And, you know, the, the activeness of it, like I, I think back to, uh, the hundred days marker. Damon did this project where he was like, "Yo, I just want y'all to come by the studio. I made these posters, and I- I'm gonna send y'all out in the middle of the night, and we gonna wheat paste the whole town, just telling them it's been a hundred days, uh, and Darren Wilson hasn't been arrested, and you know that type of stuff where everybody who showed up was just like, "Yo, we're in go mode. Let's do this." And I, I think you know that's the the energy that. I, 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 I know that I'm sometimes always trying to get back like that mm-hmm. ego less, uh, just like, let's just make yeah. some stuff and not be too heady about it, but put it into the world. Because one of the things that I think we each learn from, uh, projects like the mirror casket from, um, chalked on arm from hands up, uh, is that, when you do it, the, the artwork takes a life of its own that's outside yeah. of your control. Yeah. And you got to run with that. Yeah, I, I echo the clarity of purpose and service that crystallized in that time for me, too. And that that feeling of like, this is the this is what I want to do with my life. It all kind mm-hmm. of synced together in in that moment. And I also think about like the you know, what is different about art? Like, what is what is it that th- these artworks that we created during that time and something like the mirror casket, how did it change the tone of that protest that night? How did it, how does it support the movement? How did it support the movement? Like what, there was something different about having that object there and having the procession and having it at the police line that was that was different and i do i think art is a language it's a it is like a, a way that we express and communicate and it's kind of hard to capture in language you know what the impact that it has but there was something else going on that night with the casket and the way that people were engaging with it and and the way that it was engaging with people that was like its own kind of communication and language going on in that space and then the casket moved around to some other sites and now is in collections so I it's interesting to think also about how that you know we've talked a lot about like what is it what do we do with this piece now do we archive it where does it live afterwards that's that was a long conversation and I'm curious I'm also curious to see like what it means for people to engage this object like a decade later like young activists you know, on the front lines, what is this kind of object going to mean in a new context too? It's kind of interesting to think about. You described such intense um, time with this work of art that was um, in many ways on front lines of protest that you also described in really moving terms that um, gave you your sense of purpose when you found out that the work was going to be collected by the Smithsonian, what was running through your mind? And did that heighten for you the meaning of the work 
Um, or did it add another layer to it for you that is kind of outside of the energy that, that you're describing of, of focus, of purpose, of intensity? Yeah. When it was collected, uh, it was actually on this like statewide um, art tour of other artworks uh, from the movement. And I had just been taken to Jeff City. And once it got back from Jeff, Jeff City, it was on exhibit at the Regional Arts Commission with other works. And while it was still there, like the Smithsonian brought their team to appraise it and uh, package it all up. And during during that time period, you know, there is one this sense of responsibility that like, OK, because this happened now we have to be, or speaking for myself, now I have to be a, a better, make sure that I'm a better steward of ensuring that this this work can continue to be created. And at the same time, once September 2016 hit, I was actually like in a pissed off phase of life because I was working at uh, one of our local museums and there was a lot of uh, super racist stuff happening uh, regarding one of its shows. And I remember there was a, a town hall about that particular show, the Kelly Walker show. And Marcus Mallory and I hopped into a car that same night uh, to road trip to DC for the opening of the Smithsonian. And the the sense of irony of, of that period is something that propelled me to want to do more for our Black History Museum in St. Louis, uh, because I was getting the questions of, well, why did y'all have to take it to D.C.? Why couldn't you just keep it in St. Louis and have one of the local museums collected? And you know, the the challenge that's there is that it went to a Black History Museum, and our Black History Museum didn't have the capacity or the support to be able to collect it itself. And if it were to go to uh, the Missouri History Museum, which at that time was having a lot of xenophobic issues between like, you know, Jewish leaders and Palestinian leaders, like it was hard to find the place. So it was a blessing and it was something that further emphasized the complexity of all of these issues and inequities that exist within our arts and cultural um, ecosystem. I, I'm also, I'm like wondering, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm happy about where it is and where it ended up. And I'm, and I also wonder, you know, what are, are there these other kinds of spaces that need to exist to archive and collect like more protest art? I don't know. I, I maybe something like that exists, but, at the time, we you know we didn't know what that was, and or even a, a library. Uh, I know Arms and Fuentes has the protest banner lending library, because I I guess protest objects are, I mean there it's like art hi- history and history and like protest memorabilia, and I don't know if we quite know the best way to care for those objects. It's a little different than perhaps than just caring for art. And one, I guess one of the things I thought about at the time and still do with the piece being acquired by the Smithsonian is what does it mean to like formally canonize um, a work of protest art? You know, does, does that change it? Does, does it not change it? Like, does the work change based on who, where it's being presented and, and 
cared for? I don't know if I have a, an answer to that, but it, we talked about it a lot at the time. A lot, yeah. Um, and honestly, we haven't revisited that in a while, so it's kind of interesting to be talking out loud about it because it's you know we just we haven't really come back to this question, but it's an important question. Yeah, an, an, another question in, in that same vein is: Does that mean the fight is over? Because that's usually what mm-hmm. what you yeah. mean when 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 the other side starts praising. <laughs> the work it means you're not a threat to them no more you know that's when you get yeah. martin luther king day because because you killed him so now you know so he ain't a threat no more so let's act like he was one of our friends you know let's re again let's re let's erase and let's ignore and let's rewrite this history so so that um so that the people that's listening know what's coming for them if they try you know if they try to do something and and it's it's, it's different tactics um and and we as artists, we always, because of the way the resources we need to make stuff, we and and the fact that usually people buying art or or supporting art are people with um, disposable incomes, and we the ones coming from the from the situations in the world where people don't have a disposable income to usually support you in that. It's it's a, it's a very weird relationship that we have with with power, and I think that. It can mean one or two things when when you when the art like like uh, Mallory said gets canonized. It can mean one, like I said, that uh, that you ain't a threat no more. You know that that time has passed, um, and that's and that's an assimilation into the norm. And they'll figure out a way to assimilate you and make you a part of the agenda that they already got. Or the world actually is changing. You know, and um, me being from where I'm from, and 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 the people that I grew up around, I'm always skeptical of those things. Um, I hope that it's the latter, but I don't know all the time if it is. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a case by case basis, but that's a, that's something that's always at the front of my mind too. When we going into museums, I think museums are important because we're not gonna be here forever, and we're not gonna be able to tell this story forever. But but these artifacts that we leave behind will. So I do think that that's important that these things are kept. Um, but I'm with Dean Mallory that it's, it's hard when yo when when y'all your folks don't got the resources to take care of it. Right. So right. It, it, it gets lost to history anyway, even if it's in the, in the hands of the people that need it. So it's, it's just a it's a constant navigation. It's, a, it's, a, it's um, trying to make sure you you're doing what's right for, for the for the right reasons and stuff. As Mad Dad in the role of shaping public spaces in St. Louis, Black Memory STL um, is part of the partnership with the Brick Line Greenway development and the Grio Museum how do you kind of bring those um, necessary skepticisms to erasure against the notion of assimilation, um, but as people who are shaping public spaces? Like, in other words, how are you intending to respond to those forces of erasure um, by building new public spaces? Right on. Uh, but I think you just answered your own question, Paul. You, uh, yeah, same. I think you wasted a little bit of your own time with that because we, we respond. <laughs> we respond by getting up and, and living. See, that's the thing a lot of times. that The, the people that are so oppressed always got to have all these deeper meanings and ideas to 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 put it to put to put basic human emotion and spirit into some kind of theoretical and logical um you know, spreadsheet for people that's trying to look around 
for for a way to not feel bad about the world that they are benefiting from, right? And um, and the simplest thing for most of us, um, or, or for for me in my position, is to get up and do what I've been doing my whole life is making things. And me show, me getting into this room, and and me sitting here talking, and us sitting here talking is is, is protest in itself. It's it's um, it's uh, me getting to be able to do what I do for a living. It's it's something that nobody in in the line of people that I come from ever imagined could be done. That 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 in a that in a nutshell is is um a pretty big protest, I think, you know? And so 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 how do we how do we keep these things in, in, at the front of our minds? I don't really have a choice. I wake up with it on, on my mind. And so it come out in everything I do. Sometimes I wish I could. Like shut it yeah. off. But it's useful, you know? And so 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 I think that uh yeah, you you put it you you put it pretty frankly by the, by the way you phrased the question. I think it's how we how we move every day is how we how we keeping this stuff um, in the front of our minds and and in the work that we do. Yeah, I, I would echo that. Like, I don't necessarily always consider myself a maker anymore, but as a writer and as a speaker and as an organizer, the protest is always happening. Uh, even with being a part of the brick line, I came into it through protests. Uh, before I joined the team, I was at their dinner with all the, all the finalist teams saying, Hey, this shit ain't right. And that, that type of ability to continuously hold the truth in the room and make us look at ourselves that has to continue no matter what the art form is. Um, and, you know, even with the Griot Museum, it's a black history museum, but there, there have been several conversations, especially recently of even telling its leader, look, this ain't right. This, this portion of what y'all trying to do, this ain't right. Let's, let's tweak this. Let's make sure that we're being good stewards of, of our people, uh, in, in the energy and, uh, being respectful of the, the legacies that we're trying to, uh, unearth and, and celebrate and honor. And, having that spirit, you know, I, I rather, I rather be holding the, the truth in the fire to, to folks than other means. And I, I think they would prefer if I'm, I'm fussing at you, yelling at you, directing you, sternly talking, whatever, uh, then if I'm bringing a whole bunch of people to be like knocking at your door because y'all, y'all are abusing folks. And I, I think we have to, Find, find that sense of balance. Here's the moment when I, I'm at the table and you know we're planning, we're strategizing. And here's the moment where you need to be clear that I will always be on the side of Black folks in liberation. And even as a part of uh, this project, if we step out of bounds, uh, one, I'm not going to be at your defense because I've been speaking up. We've been speaking up. And so I, I think there's always that tension that we have to wrestle with when being a part of a, a lot of these larger projects and efforts. I feel like I'm always on fire. Do you use the word fire? Like I'm just always on fire inside. But And that fire is really like it's fueled by love. So it's like this weird mixture of like joy and rage uh, all the time, but it's, you know, and the, the way that love plays out 
is both like lifting up work and people and stories and then equally critiquing and moving through the world with that lens. And that is a form of care and love for me, for humanity. And then I also think the fact that we are, we can be in these rooms where decisions are being made and we, for whatever reason, are at the table. I also think of it as personally like a really huge responsibility and a privilege to be in these conversations and in these positions. And, you know, I, I might critique my own self for for having to feel that all the time, but that's where I am right now. And so I don't take it lightly. I always feel like I am constantly in warrior status. And again, like I may or may not have to go back and critique that internally when I like try to go to sleep tonight. But I honestly, I just don't even remember ever in my life not feeling that not feeling like I have to be in warrior status, not feeling like Dee said, like that tension moving when you move through the world. And then it's from that, those points of tension, that like mixture of, of like love and critique. And that it's from that, that so much of the, for me, the creative energy comes out and the, and needing to do something and do something different uh, and imagine it a, a different way. But it really is, it does feel almost like in my body, like this ener- energetically, like this fire. Dee, Damon, and Mallory, thank you so much uh, for this conversation, for your powerful work and, and all that you do. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. You can learn more about MADAT by visiting the Monument Lab website and clicking on the fellows page. You can find each member's social handles, and we recommend you follow each of them for more insights and developments on their work. To learn more about how you can get a free copy of the Monument Lab St. Louis Research Map, you can visit our website and look for the Public Iconographies Project page. Monument Lab is produced by Monument Lab Studio, Justin Geller and Paul Farber. Extra assistance comes from studio manager Yannick Trapman O'Brien, designer William Hodgson, and communications director Patricia Kim. All music you hear on the Monument Lab podcast is by Mokita. The Monument Lab podcast is supported by the Cerdna Foundation. To find out more about Monument Lab, visit us at monumentlab.com or find us online at monument underscore lab. You can find Monument Lab anywhere you get podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Play. You can also read a full transcript of each episode on our website. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave a rating. Your feedback really helps. 